HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a full-service marketing and commerce platform that helps restaurants get discovered, make more money, and engage their diners. Join over 8,000 restaurants already using Bento Box today to deliver better hospitality. Visit getbento.com hrn today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com hrn. I wanted to tell you about an upcoming event. I'll be moderating a live stream on Kitsch, a new social streaming community for food lovers. On April 9th at 3 p.m. Eastern, join me and Jeremy Fox for a recipe demo of his rice flour battered king trumpet mushrooms and conversation about mushrooms in celebration of Earth Month. You can find this event, HRN's creator channel, and other upcoming streams at kitch.com. That's K-I-T-T-C-H dot com. Check it out. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Eat Your Heartland Out with me, your host and tour guide, Capri Gaffaro. On our show this hour, we're exploring the Midwestern craft soda scene. Of course, because this is a show about food and culture in the Midwest, we clearly have to have that regional debate. Is it soda or is it pop? Well, I personally say pop, pop forever. You might be surprised where some of our guests come down on this age-old question. We have three guests on the program today who are all either makers or purveyors of craft soda or pop in the Midwest. Leslie Klein is the founder of Cast Iron Soda, a nostalgic soda fountain in Salem, Ohio. Bob Hansen is the owner of Spring Grove Soda. Hailing from Minnesota, Spring Grove is a pop brand that has been around since 1895. But before we welcome Leslie and Bob, I want to bring in another guest from Minnesota, Mark Lazarczyk, owner of Blue Sun Soda. Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. Of course. So you are the proprietor of Blue Sun Soda out in Minnesota. Kind of rhymes. Uh, tell us a little bit about why you decided that you were going to get into the craft soda, or of course, as we like to call it in the Midwest, the pop business. But, well, I, I, uh, I'm from the Midwest, and I still call it soda. So it, it's, the, uh, it's the Civil War in the Midwest of what to call There's something soda. wrong with you. <laughs> I, I, I've been told that many times. But uh, <laughs> a minority of people call it pop, and even less call it Coke. 
So I, I'm taking the majority run on this and calling it soda. Because That's true. Of, yeah. And if also, if I ever want to take this company national, uh, no one in the South or out West knows what a pop is. That's true. So, but everyone, yeah, everyone knows what a soda is. There you go. I started this company for two reasons, um, or two things kind of spurred it on. The first was I owned a software company, and I used to take all the uh, all the techies to the brew pub after work to do a meeting. And you'd, you'd go to this brew pub, and the server would come up to you, and they'd start describing their beers, and, and they, would, they would come out. And, you know, it would be a 20-minute description of some pale ale that they show a picture of a cherry for 30 seconds once a day and, you know, all this other blah, blah, blah. And they'd get to me and I don't like beer. So I'd say, what else do you have? And they'd say, well, we got Coker Sprite. And I thought, God, that is stupid. <laughs> That's just sad. <laughs> I just spend money too. And you're offering me crappy Coke and crappy Sprite from a fountain that I guarantee isn't calibrated. And then the other thing was there's a, there's a video out there from John Neese in California, who owns Galco's Grocery Store in L.A. Mm-hmm. And it was a grocery store from 18-something on with his, his family. And, oh, 10, 15, 20 years ago, something like that, John got pissed off at Coke and Pepsi. Because uh, what, what people mostly don't know is when you buy Coke or Pepsi from uh, Sam's Club, Costco, whatever, you're actually buying it for less than they paid for it. Because they price it so you come in, buy that, and buy everything else. It's a loss leader. You know, most people have probably heard that term. So John's getting quoted prices from them that are, you know, two bucks a case more than people can run down the street at the grocery store and buy it for, for his cost. And John said, I'm not going to buy your product. It doesn't make any sense. I'll just send my customers down there. And they started basically yelling at him about how need, you know, how they, how he needs them. And John just got pissed. So he went out and found a bunch of small bottlers and started putting, you know, put like a hundred sodas on a shelf and people kept coming in and buying them and buying them and buying them. So then eventually, eventually within like five, 10 years, maybe even sooner, uh, John had cleared all the food out of his grocery store and turned it into a, a soda and candy shop. And he had, at the time of this video, he had 400 sodas on the shelf. That's a lot. Yeah, this was in 2009. I think now he has 800 on his shelf. We have 1,300 when we're full on wow. our shelves. 1,300 different so. So how do you pick all of those uh, different uh, flavors and different brands? I, I don't. I buy everything. And my customers tell me what to, what to buy more of because if they buy it, I'll buy more of it. If, it, if they Makes don't sense. buy it, it just sits on our shelves. Okay, here, funny. So when we opened, uh, I thought because I like lime soda, I bought a ton of lime soda. Well, lime soda ranks like eighth in flavors. So we had all this lime soda because I thought everyone likes what I like. <laughs> but no, no, they don't. So if that's like, you know, middle of the pack, what's at the top of the pack? What are, What is some of the leading flavors of lime, which seems like one that people would like? I mean, what what is at the top of uh, what's one, two, and three? Number one's always root beer. Oh, makes sense. Always root beer. Number two, surprisingly, is cream sodas. Uh, number three in our categories, so this isn't really fair in a flavor profile. Actually, it's number two in categories, 
is our weird and wacky sodas, but that's, you know, that's everything under the sun that doesn't make any sense to be in a soda. So it's not right. really a flavor. But then third flavor is black cherry. You mentioned weird and wacky. I want to I wanna dig a little bit deeper on that. What is weird and wacky um, that you carry? What's like the weirdest and the wackiest? Well, we, actually, we make an entire line of weird ones. Uh, we oh. make a blue cheese dressing soda. We make a spaghetti soda. We make a dill pickle soda. We make a mini donut soda. We make a waffles and syrup soda. Uh, what's the other one? We make a marshmallow soda. But then we also have, you know, we have teriyaki chicken wing soda, uh, ranch dressing soda, uh, beef jerky soda, licorice soda, cucumber soda. Uh, there's flower sodas out there, like floral flavored sodas. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it, you know, the list goes, if, if it's a flavor, you can make it into a soda. So tell us how, how does that happen? How do you decide on the flavors that you want to make? And what is that process like? Well, when I, I, I come up with a theme usually for like brand of sodas. So like the weird and wacky ones, that was simple. It was going to be WT Hex sodas. And then I said, okay, I need six flavors that you would absolutely never expect to be in a soda. So then it's just a matter of what can we make here that you can actually make it into a soda. Because, uh, I mean, there's some, there's some flavor ideas that come to mind, but they're impossible to make into a soda. Or I shouldn't say they're impossible. What's the most popular of the nasty? Dill pickle. Again, like, I, I feel like the pickleback. Yeah. Some people actually like pickles, so they, they enjoy it and they drink it. Well, you're really selling it. You're really selling it, Mark. Well, no one buys these to put a 12-pack in their fridge and be like, I can't wait to get home and have a spaghetti soda. They buy them to force their friends to drink them and make other people It's so disgusting. You have to have it. <laughs> like the spaghetti soda? You ever had SpaghettiOs? Uh, yeah, unfortunately. I'm sure we all have, right? <laughs> yeah, imagine the sauce in SpaghettiOs, but I dump a cup of sugar into it and oh. now drink. Yeah, no thanks. So, So you've been at this since about... 2015, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, you're in Minnesota, but it's my understanding, if I'm not wrong, that you're the largest soda shop in the world. Is that right? Yeah, we carry the largest selection in the world. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things that I just started saying it because I can't find a soda shop with more anywhere. And anyone ever wants to tell me I'm wrong, they can. But I have yet to see a shop that most people pick and choose what they're going to sell. And I'm, I just don't, I buy everything. You started, you know, you're obviously kind of like, you know, the king of soda uh, in the Midwest and beyond. You started the Minnesota uh, Soda Fest. Tell, uh, tell me a little bit about that. Minnesota Soda Festival. You guys say that three times fast. Uh, we've got a big parking lot behind us and a big parking lot in the neighbor next door. And he agreed to let me use his parking lot. So we set up. We had a, a, a shade over a hundred different sodas out there and we called, you know, every bottler that would come and set up so they could tell their stories because their stories are amazing of what these guys do and what they, you know, what they've done, you sure. know, third, fourth, fifth generation bottlers out there. And uh, we just let them all set up and people could come in and, you know, you buy tickets. They were like 25 cents a piece and that would get you a, a sample. You could, 
take a, a one ounce taste of any soda you want. You could buy books of them for less. You could buy a VIP ticket and get unlimited tastings. We had a bunch of food trucks there. We had set up bounce houses and mini golf course, and we brought in street performers to walk around and entertain people. We had a 1950s bus driving people from the parking lot. Sounds like a blast. Yeah, it was fun. It was a little ridiculous and a little over the top and kind of crazy. And, you know, the first year we had, I think it was 4,500 people show up and nothing went wrong. So that was like, okay, how the hell did that happen? You know, we, we, we should have screwed this up, but we didn't. So, uh, you know, we'll probably do it again. You should. I mean, it sounds like it's a great concept and one that I'm sure, you know, has attracted a lot of people. And as you said, highlights a lot of these different brands of, you know, third, fourth, fifth generation battlers and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. You mentioned it's, it's crazy and ridiculous. And that makes me think of your mascot, which is Soda yeah. Jerk. Right? Billy, um, Billy the Soda Jerk, yeah. Billy the Soda Jerk, which is a brilliant oh, name. Um, yep. What's his deal? Uh, well, the story is that when we bought the building, Billy was there. And really? has always been with the building. So we didn't really have a choice but to open a soda shop because there was a Soda Jerk permanently attached to the building. So we didn't really have any choices. Um, yes, but Billy the Soda Jerk has a personality, right? Oh, oh, Billy is nothing but trouble. Uh, on <laughs> opening day, Billy was running up and down the aisles yelling at the customers to put all the bottles back because he had just spent a week making all the shelves nice and neat and they were screwing it up. He started taking <laughs> bottles out of people's carts and putting them back on the shelves. Um Billy, uh, what's the other thing? All of our sodas are priced at one price in the store, and Billy would hold a bottle to his head and go two forty nine, and then he'd scan it and go, "I'm a mystic." <laughs> Every single time, he'd write <laughs> out the boxes to people. Uh, yeah, he's uh, he works the soda fountain on occasion, and when he works the soda fountain, he's been known to to indulge. Billy lives on uh, soda and candy alone. So he sounds like uh, me. I, I pretty much the same. I, I live on, you know, pop and, and sour patch kids. So me and Billy would get along. You guys would get along great. <laughs> and he's got his own pop line, I guess, the bubble pop. Yeah, Billy's bubble pop. It's uh there's five flavors, and because Billy made them, they're all the wrong color. So the why is, the what, what are you doing, Billy? Why are you like that? <laughs> we, we have no idea. But we're, we're attributing it to he just doesn't know the true color and doesn't know why it should be. But the, uh, what was it? The grape is yellow. The cherry is blue. Uh, orange is green, I think. Yeah, it, it, but the, that's kind of fun because you drink a cherry soda that's blue and it tastes like cherry. It kind of blows your mind a little bit. No, for sure. Absolutely. It's like, what is blue raspberry? We're not really sure. It's blue, but it's raspberry. It's a made-up um, Sounds like Billy is is quite the personality and, and has a, a great line of, of products as well. So what's on the horizon for you? Uh, well, I'm I'm like currently sitting at my fourth store doing the build-out right now, trying to get this oh, one wow. open. Uh, then we launched the online site. Once we launch the online site, then I'll probably steer 
steer all of my attention. I, I own a, a couple other e-commerce businesses. And so I, I know that world pretty well. So once we get that going, I'll probably start focusing a lot of my energy on, uh, on getting that out there, promoting it, getting it on, you know, every single site out there, you know, your Ebays, your Amazon, your Walmart, everything. So sure. Because I think people, I think once people see some options, they have a tendency to make good choices instead of, uh, you know, being so limited in your options when you go to a grocery store or something. I've always been of the belief that if you're going to drink soda, drink something good because it's a lot of sugar and a lot of calories to take in at one time. So make it good. Don't make it just some mediocre thing in a plastic bottle. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Well, I'm so glad that you shared your story with us and I'm looking forward to, you know, uh, hearing more about, you know, what you're up to next and definitely going to keep an eye on Billy and, and all of his new products. So thank you so much for joining us. Now we welcome another Minnesota-based pop person, Bob Hansen, owner of Spring Grove Soda. Bob, I am so excited for you to join the program. Uh, you have uh, such an interesting story, and Spring Grove Soda has such an interesting story. Give us a little history behind Spring Grove. Well, Spring Grove Soda was started back in 1895 by a gentleman by the name of G.G. Risty. Uh, Mr. Risty was a town pharmacist, and back in that time period in all these small little towns, they, the pharmacy would also either have like a soda jerk or an ice cream parlor. And Mr. Risty had the soda jerk, and it, it was going real well, and people just loved it, and they'd come in and just have a soda instead of ordering medicines or anything. And him and his um, brother, brother-in-law actually got together and bought some bottling equipment and um, started to started to bottle it back then. And um, it was going real well. And they ended up selling it. They wanted to get back to being a veterinarian and a pharmacist. And they sold it. But whenever they sold it, it would always be inside their family. It'd be a, a sister, or a brother-in-law, or somebody like that would buy it and run it for a few years. And then they'd sell it again to somebody in their family. Until 1963, and that's when they sold it um, to the Arnold Morkin family. And the Arnold Morkin family ran it, and they'd actually bought Paps Blue Ribbon Distributing at that at that time. And I tell everybody that's pretty much what saved Spring Grove Soda because mm. back then, when Coke and Pepsi were making their big pushes, that's that really um, helped them as far as distribution and, um, and other things, they could, they could get their product out and they didn't have to worry about Coke and Pepsi overtaking them. That makes sense. Yeah. It, it worked out pretty well for them. So, so then what, so, uh, how did you come into the picture? Well, we came into the picture. It had, Arnold had retired and he'd sold it to his sons and his son Sanford retired and he sold it to, um, his brother's brother's son, Eric. So it was a father and son team, Roger and Eric Morgan ran it. And now we're, now we're into the um, late nineties and Paps Blue Ribbon had kind of fallen off the face of the earth <laughs> and they were selling, they were selling a bunch of beer at first and right, 
in the 90s when Eric got involved, they were selling about a semi-load of beer a year and about 10,000 cases of pop. And um, they decided they were going to have to sell it, sell the business. They couldn't afford to, to keep it in in about 2002. And at that time, I was a timber cruiser for a logging company. And my wife was an ins- working for an insurance agent. And she knew the Morkins real well. And they had came in and to do something with their insurance and told her that they had the pop factory up for sale. Well, I made the fatal fatal mistake and I said, well, I wonder what they want for that. <laughs> and she found out <laughs> and here I am today. So um, we, we bought it in 2003 from um, Roger and Eric and we, my wife Dawn started out here and she, she ran it for the first seven years and we were, um, when we bought it, we were, they were doing about 10,000 cases of pop, of spring grove pop. And so Dawn had, had her work cut out for her. Everything was on a hand ledger. There was a computer here, and that was basically for um, solitaire. And oh, wow. that was about it. And so she came in and got everything computerized and um, set up and started bottling. And she... Um, we knew we needed to do some different different things with the package and change the package and try to get back to the kind of the original long neck bottle mm-hmm. the way it looked and um, so she was she worked on that and after about seven years my health insurance that I was carrying for the family through the logging company was just getting terrible so um, a local um, gas station chain wanted to hire my wife to manage one of their stores. So they had good health insurance. So we switched spots and I came in and started to manage this. And by then Dawn had us up to about 20,000 cases of product she was selling of Spring Grove. So she was, she changed the package and she'd gotten everything straightened around real nice. And then I came into the picture and I, I ran it for a couple of years and I had to start replacing some equipment and we, decided when when I had to do that, that we were going to do it with co-packing in mind and trying to do more co-packing of craft sodas and other things. Mm. So we started to, we, we got that all set up and we started, I started to bottle for a couple other different companies. And um, in turn, that helped um, raise a, the Spring Grove soda numbers. We started to get that out, out a lot better. And today we're we're doing about fifty to fifty to sixty thousand cases of Spring Grove soda a year, and we're also co-packing about another another seventy-five to a hundred thousand cases of contract packaging. Well, I mean, it's it's a real tale of entrepreneurship. I mean, everything that you're saying, you know, I'm sure that uh, you know small business owners or business owners of any size can can relate to. Uh, you know, uh, you asked the question about how much is the pop factory, but why, why ask that question? Why did you think, Hey, you know, what might be interesting? What might be fun owning, owning something that makes pop of any kind? We weren't from, from Spring Grove. We ended up moving in because of, um, I'd gotten a job over here and we just fell in love with the town. It's a, it's a real nice little town, real clean little town. And it, it had its own pop. And we thought, God, that's cool. 
So we'd always have it in the refrigerator. And I, um, I had managed sawmills before and done different things. And I guess even as a little kid, I always thought it'd be so cool to um, have a have my own sawmill or have my own business and run it. I was a big um, Walton's Mountain fan. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you remember the TV show, The Walton. Of course, of course. I was a big, big fan of that, and um, I always thought that would be so cool. And so when when the Pop Factory came up for sale and I said that, I was just, you know, just kind of curiosity, and I guess that killed the cat too. But um, <laughs> I looked in, we started to look into it a little bit, and we came and did a tour, and the – I've been around machinery my whole life. And so the machinery didn't scare me at all. It was, mm-hmm. it was just, you know, something to, something to work on. And, um, so we got involved with it a little bit when I got involved with it, when we bought it, it was, it was really exciting. It was exciting, but I was still doing a full-time job that took me, took me out of the house at five o'clock in the morning. I didn't get back until probably six o'clock at night, most nights. And so I couldn't couldn't help Dawn a whole lot, but whenever she did have equipment problems, then I'd I'd jump in on the weekends or whatever, and I'd get it all all going again for her to make sure that everything was up and running the way it needed to be. But it was just a little excitement, just something to, something different to do, and you know, it was fun to learn. It's been fun to learn the whole process. I can only imagine. And one thing I, I know that, you know, a lot of people have to learn uh, on the spot um, is, you know, it sounds like you, you know quite a bit about machinery, but I don't know how much you knew about, you know, flavoring sodas. Um, <laughs> you know, how, tell me about that process. I mean, what are, what are the flavors that are involved with um, the Spring Grove uh, sodas? You know, is there one primary flavor? Um, is there a variety Um you know, what would we taste if we were to come visit? Well, we do, we do everything with our, our flavor bases used with cane sugar, but we've got nine different flavors and um, the flavors are strawberry, orange, grape, cream soda, black cherry, uh, lemon sour, root beer, cream, cream soda, and a rhubarb. And, the rhubarb was the one that, well, also a creamy orange. The rhubarb was the one that um, we put together, and because we've got a local local town that has a rhubarb, rhubarb festival, and they wanted a soda, so we put that together for them, and it's turned into turned into be quite a quite a flavor for us. But it, you know, as far as me, us knowing what we were getting into. The previous owner, Roger, he stuck around for for us for for about eight years, and he he helped us out learning. He learned, taught us how to how to do all the bottling and stuff, and mix mix all all the flavoring up and stuff like that, which was a godsend. But I think several different owners added a flavor here and there. I know the Morkins added the creamy creamy orange flavor, but. Um, a lot of that was before or when the Morkins had bought it, they were still making their own concentrates um, in-house. And then they developed the creamy orange. Once they got involved, um, started doing it, and they started 
getting going along with it a little bit, they they discovered that they could have a company make this stuff for them, make the concentrates for them, and it'd be a lot lot easier for them to do that. And so they they ended up hiring a company to to um, to develop the flavors for them. They used their same recipes, but they they could make them in larger batches and make them a lot more efficiently. So they ended up doing that. But um, when Mr. Risley started it, this company, he made everything in-house and um, he developed it part of his pharmaceutical um, repertoire. I, I guess I would have to say he was, he was able to develop those, those different flavors and um, get them, get them going real well. Yeah, those pharmacy, those those drugstore soda fountains must have a connection some somehow, and and it sounds like you know this is definitely the case for for Spring Grove's origins for sure. Right, and I, as far as the um, the rhubarb goes, when we we started to develop that, like I said, that we had a town, a local town um, that has a rhubarb festival, and they really wanted to um, to have a rhubarb soda. Well. Rhubarb is extremely tart. When you you start talking about the concentrate, the liquid out of it, um, that's extremely tart. So we we wanted to sweeten that up, and we worked with a local chemist to um, to kind of develop it. And when it got right down to it, I ended up ended up bringing it. When I took over for Dawn, I ended up bringing going in with it and developing the label for it. They, they really didn't want to develop a label too bad. And um, so I put a, got a label put together for it. And I, I really didn't like their flavor. So I ended up just taking some, some of our syrup, our sugar-based syrup, and the, the flavors. And I just started playing with them until I, could, I said, may I have another? That was the whole philosophy behind it. That's a good philosophy. And I got it to that point, and I, I stopped, and we started to sell it that way. And um, we ended up taking it to the Minnesota State Fair that, that first year that I got it set up right. And um, we went up there. At, it was at the end of the season, and I wasn't going to bottle any more of it that year. And I went up there with 25 cases, and I thought – well, that should be pretty good. And I took on our booth. I just wrote wrote a on a piece of cardboard and I taped it to our booth, Rhubarb, right below our flavor selections. And um, everybody was coming up and saying, "Well, what's that? What's that? And what's Rhubarb?" And I I would tell them, and they'd buy it. Well, the state fair starts on a Thursday, and by the first Saturday morning, we were out of those twenty five cases of Rhubarb. Wow. And Good for you. Yeah, it it made the um, Minnesota State Fair's top ten list for foods, and um, we had a couple flavors do that. But it was really exciting for us to see that see that make it. And, and ever since then, it's been a big it's been a big deal for us. It's really really worked out well. Fantastic. Uh, that's so. What's on the horizon then? What's next? I mean, you did rhubarb. Are there new flavors or new concepts coming? Right now, I think that we're trying to get get past all of our COVID stuff and all that stuff. But yeah, we'd we'd like to develop maybe some um, more sparkling waters and stuff like that. Get into the 
get into the um, flavored water a little bit, and then possibly another flavor flavor or two. But, you know, we've got nine right now, so you might as well try to boost it That's up a little bit That's quite a few. More. Sure, absolutely. Well, where can we find your flavors? Um, is is the, can, Do we have to go to Minnesota, or can we find them on the shelves uh, or order them online? Um, you can order them online. We've got our website. It would be springrosodapop.com. You can go there and find it. You can also, um, when you're on our website, you can click the Find Me button, and you should be able to find it anywhere in Minnesota, um, all over in Wisconsin, Iowa, and North and South Dakota. So we're in a few states, but we're also in um, in with a group, an online group called Fair, and we we get orders all over from all over the country, and um, we're sending we're sending pop out to little craft stores all over the country. Oh, I know, I know, F A F A I R E. Yes, I'm right. familiar with them. They they are a really interesting way for small businesses, you know, to find different types of entrepreneurs, makers, different products across the country and, and, and source them and put them in their, uh, their stores or even on online. That's, it's a really, that's a really great resource. It's good for you. Yeah. It, it works out really well for us. We, um, when we started out with it, we thought, you know what, if we can do a couple of different places a month, that'd be pretty cool. Well, the first week, I think when we went live, I think we had seven orders the first day. Wow. And it just it blew, blew up from there. So we ended up having to restructure a little bit the way we do things. But um, we've, we're selling, sending pop all over the country, all over the country now. And it, it, that's really cool. It's getting out in, and we're getting a lot of real positive feedback from that. So, Well, Bob, I'm really excited to see what the future holds for you and hope to have a chance to try one of your multiple flavors uh, sometime in the future. Thank you for joining us. Stick around for more Eat Your Heartland Out after these messages. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a restaurant marketing and commerce platform that helps you get discovered, make more money, and engage your diners so you can deliver great hospitality both in person and online. In the heart of Williamsburg, Brooklyn, Lilia combines wood-fired seafood, handcrafted pasta, classic Italian cocktails, and warm hospitality. Since 2016, it's been celebrated as a neighborhood gathering place, bringing the best of Italy to New York City. Lilia is one of over 8,000 restaurants that leverages Bento Box to power their digital front door, including their website, gift cards, event management, and more. Visit getbento.com slash HRN today to learn more and get your first month free. That's getbento.com slash HRN. You're listening to Eat Your Heartland Out. We're moving our craft soda discussion from Minnesota to Ohio. Our final guest this hour is Leslie Klein, founder of Cast Iron Soda in Salem, Ohio. Leslie, uh, thanks for joining Eat Your Heartland Out. We're happy to have you and happy to have you are local to me. 
in Ohio. I am. Yeah. And I appreciate you having us on. This is pretty great. Absolutely. You know, I'm always excited to highlight folks from, you know, my own home state, although I find oftentimes, you know, I, I overcompensate a little bit. And I'm like, I got to find everybody else from Ohio, that's not from Ohio, but, you know, to make sure it's not a totally Ohio show. But, <laughs> you know, sometimes I can't resist. And, and I think your story is great because you really are tapping into something, and maybe there's a little bit of a metaphor there, um, <laughs> that, that I think is, is really an interesting and fun trend that I think is starting to emerge. But, you know, it's, it's unique and certainly um, unique to our region. And, and that's, um, you know, a home for, for craft sodas and unique sodas. Um, how did you decide to, to start this? Well, um, to be honest, our, our initial thoughts on this venture weren't necessarily about soda. Um, we were looking for um, to create a place of community within our downtown, some place that would be open in the evening, a place to hang out that was really suitable for all ages, um, multi-generational, and just make it a place for people to go and for people to be where everybody felt welcome and everybody felt like they had a place um, and just had fun. And um, and my husband was quick to say, that'd be great, but we need to make money somehow. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we started thinking about what would that be? What is going to appeal to all ages? And um, we, we really racked our brains um, hard for probably only about a week when the, the craft soda idea popped into our heads. And we were like, oh my gosh, like this is it. We could make it nostalgic like a soda fountain. We could make it still feel modern uh, with a bar or coffee house type vibe um, and appeal to maybe a younger generation. And yeah, so that's, that's kind of where the idea was born. Well, and for those folks that are not familiar with Salem, Ohio, um, paint a picture of downtown Salem and and uh, kind of what it has to offer and, and, you know, why you felt that this could be something that could enrich um, that kind of Main Street USA vibe. Oh, yeah. And Main Street USA vibe is exactly what downtown is. It's If you picture small town, Midwest, you know, your classic downtown with the tall, unique buildings and lots of fun shops, that's what Salem is is becoming. Um, it's my hometown. I, I grew up here. Um, I graduated and left for couple of decades and we moved that's, back that's about a story six, for many that's a story for many of us yes yeah and so we moved back a little over six years ago and you know when I was a kid the downtown was the place to go it was where my brother and I rode our bikes to it was where we did our shopping you know for back to school clothes and everything we needed and and it just like everything especially in this northeast ohio area um you know happened in the late 80s early 90s the downtowns kind of started to die off and salem was no exception to that um, but it's really been making this resurgence and when we came back 6 years ago it it seemed like that was really just starting to kick in and we saw Lib's Coffee Shop open up and they've really been anchoring the downtown for the last seven years. And then we had Lawson's Furniture open up and one by one, these neat little niche shops have been opening up and that was what excited us. And, um, but at that time, nothing was really open in the evenings um, except for the bars and the restaurants, which are great, but sometimes you don't want to borrow a restaurant. And so that's, um, that's where we came in, but it's, it's Salem is a, a pretty neat downtown and it just kind of feels like 
home. It feels like what downtowns used to be. And, right. um, and, and it's really coming back to life. Even since we've only been open for a little over eight months now, even since we've opened, we've had, I think, six or seven new shops open. It's really kind of becoming a hot spot for new and fun niche shops. That's great. And it's so encouraging, you know, to hear that there are all these you know, towns across the Midwest, and, you know, I'm sure you kind of probably feel the same way that I do, that this Rust Belt or flyover country is just, you know, it's derogatory and it's so played out because there are these, there is this resurgence and this, you know, renaissance that's happening for a number of different reasons, including, you know, cost of living. And and certainly I think the pandemic is also kind of playing into some of that. Oh, absolutely. Where, you know, People are moving out of expensive cities, realizing that they can work from wherever and coming into to communities like Salem or places, you know, across Northeast Ohio, Michigan, et cetera, realizing that they could really, you know, do something special and have a really strong quality of life. And, and you know, mm-hmm. that's, I think, part of what, you know, your cast iron soda is is playing into is that that nostalgia, like you mentioned, um, so, you know, you said that, you know, your husband's like, well, this is a great idea, but, you know, we got to try to make some money and how are we <laughs> going to do it? And um, so what, what was your journey like to um, to put this together? Oh, gosh. Um, well, we knew nothing about um, running a, a retail business like this. Um, we knew nothing about creating soda, like kegging things, carbonating things. Um, I, I didn't even like root beer, to be honest with you. <laughs> so, Cause, and that's um, of course how you end up in the soda fountain. Exactly. Right? Yeah. You don't like root beer. Something that we don't like and we don't drink a lot of. Right. But it was, it, it really became tons and tons and tons of research. We, we felt pretty passionate that this was going to be a fantastic space for people and that this was the platform to do it with. So we were, we were pretty motivated by that, but it was just a lot of research. I started, um, we, we started bouncing around to different places that made their own root beer, some breweries and that sort of thing. I was forcing myself to drink it and actually came to like it pretty quickly. <laughs> so I don't know <laughs> if that was like a, a childhood rejection that I just never gave a second chance. I don't know. But um, but at any rate, I, I've come to love root beer. Of course, I, I make our own in our shop. But it was just, yeah, we did a lot of research um, and just trial and error. I mean, we started our build out in January of 2021. Um, but prior to that, I had already purchased some kegs and we started playing with recipes and just mixing them up here at home and carbonating them. A lot of reading on how to do that and pressure valves and all these kind of fun things. But um, it was it, it was a lot of fun to, to learn and all the different ways to carbonate and just things that I, I never expected at this point in my life to be learning about, but so much fun doing. <laughs> so so, wh- so give us some insight into, you know, the different types of carbonation and processes. I mean, just a little snapshot because, you know, I'm unfamiliar and I'm sure a lot of other people are as well because you need to figure, okay, a carbonated drink is a carbonated drink, whatever. Um, what did you learn um, as you, you know, were experimenting? Well, the the two basic ways to carbonate um, sodas, especially, is um, to use natural carbonation, which is through a fermentation process. So very much like um, making beer, you use um, a brewer's yeast or a champagne yeast, you add it to your soda mixture. And um, so it's just your your soda syrup, whatever you made up, and your water. And you put this little bit of yeast in it, and it 
course, feeds on the sugars in there and it starts to carbonate. Again, very much like beer. The difference with soda is at room temperature, it's going to ferment. As soon as you bring it into a cool space, it slows down that fermentation process. So with soda, you you stop doing that, depending on what it is that you're carbonating, anywhere from like 24 to 48 hours after adding the yeast, you chill it then. And so it stops the carbonation. So you you get that little bit of fermentation that adds some bubbles from the gases produced from the, the yeast reproducing. Um, but then you stop that process. If, if you don't, then it continues to ferment and then you have alcoholic sodas. <laughs> so adult beverages. But um, Interesting. Yeah. So the other way to carbonate um, is forced carbonation using carbon dioxide. And that's where you hook up your kegs to, um, to a CO2 tank and pressurize it. And the the liquid absorbs the carbon dioxide, and that's what creates the the bubbles. I mean, ultimately, that's what all carbonation is, is carbon dioxide. It's just whether you forcefully inject the carbon dioxide or naturally produce it with yeast. So that's kind of the two different methods. So we decided to go with the forced carbonation method. Um, it's just, it's a little bit safer um, in yep. a number of ways. You don't run the risk of things continuing to ferment accidentally. Um, that can lead to things like bottles exploding and, and that kind of thing. Um, and we also don't want to run any sort of risk of things fermenting just a little bit too long and maybe having an alcohol content that we didn't want to have. So... So we do the forced carbonation method, um, but that's yeah, that's that's kind of what we learned and the methods that we're we're using right now. Interesting. So this makes me like ask the question, and I think I, I think I might know the answer to it, but you know, pop, and this is a Midwestern show, so pop, <laughs> pop. you know, is um, you know, so if you're drinking, you know, whatever diet coke, you know, et cetera, I, that's a forced. Uh, Carbonation is that? Would that be the same kind of thing? I'm assuming you know they're what? not like fermenting things, like, right? To make, I, like... I would, I would guess so. To be honest, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what like the large soda makers are doing, but I, I would guess that it would be yes. Interesting. So yeah, that's not something I necessarily know either. Well, I, you know, I, I guess we can, we can live and learn and guess, but <laughs> right. I, I, I have a hunch that it's not about. I don't, I feel like it's not like widespread fermentation. Yeah, probably knows? not. That would be my guess as well. <laughs> yeah. So um, what kind of, so, you, you know, you expend, you, you uh, played around with the carbonation process. Um, and then how did you come up with the flavors? So we started very basic. Um, we didn't know, you know, where exactly we were going to go with all of it. And honestly, our, our bigger focus was um, our, the, the craft glass bottled sodas that we carry. Mm -hmm. um, those are not ours. We don't bottle our own at this point. We plan to, but um, we're not there yet. But that was um, kind of our, I guess, our showstopper, if you will, is our wall behind the bar is we carry mm -hmm. right now, we're a little over 500 different varieties of um, craft glass bottled sodas. And on our wall, we have one of everything. So the, the wall behind the bar kind of acts as a bit of a menu of sorts. And um, that was really our focal point in there was to just, it, 
we just think it's fun to come in and see all of these bottles and we get so many people sitting at the bar like I had no clue that this many different kinds of pop existed. <laughs> and so No, I have uh, to say I saw so I, I because you are local, I actually saw a segment on on local television about about your place and I was blown away, which is why I reached out to you because I had no idea. You see this huge wall like a rainbow, basically, of yep. of different bottles of of you know pop, craft soda, root beer, whatever. Um, and I had no idea that there was that many types and that many flavors. How do you find you know so many um, different types, and and how do you select them from you know what seem what might seem like a needle in a haystack? There, we just, we started searching for makers and for distributors both. And um, we came up with a few that we knew of um, before we started the process. And we just started tracking them down and then asking questions and finding more. Uh, we made a couple trips to places like Grandpa Joe's in Pittsburgh. And I think there's one in Cuyahoga Falls and that has mm-hmm. a, a selection of sodas, not quite as many as we have, but we would look at who the bottling companies are on their bottles and and track those people down. And, um, and just, we started coming across a, a number of different places where we could get these. Uh, We do work directly with some of the manufacturers and others we just work with distributors because some of the manufacturers don't distribute themselves. They work solely with other distributors. And and so from there, um, initially we were going for sheer volume. So the the selection process really at first was about what is this label – um, ingredients were an issue for us. We do try to stay mostly to pure cane sugar-based sodas. And then we would just look at the label. And, you know, if it if it looked fun and it sounded fun, we're like, you know what, we're going to give this a go. Because we wanted it, we wanted people to just stop with wide eyes when they walked in the door. We wanted that first look at that wall to be the thing that just made them say, Oh my gosh. So it really did become about numbers at first. And um, and I think when we opened in May, we opened with about 380 different sodas. Um, and we've increased since then. Now, since then, we're finding more sodas to add to the wall to broaden our selection. There are a handful that um, we've just learned really just aren't super great. So there's not very many. I would say less than 10 that are on the wall. But um, once we've learned that, we're like, you know what? We're just not getting these again. So we'll finish out our supply. Maybe we'll see. Um, But then they're just going to come off the wall. So again, at first it kind of was about, is this a cool flavor? Is it a cool label? Then let's put it on the wall just, you know, so we have that visual. But now we're starting that we, there's still so many out there that we don't have yet. And so now we're starting to become selective of let's get rid of these, let's bring this label in. And we're starting to curate things a little bit more distinctly on the wall. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and I'm sure you're getting feedback as well from, 
you know, customers, you know, Always. basically saying, oh, this is great or this is gross. Um, yeah. Because, yeah. I, you know, I can see the novelty certainly of like, oh my gosh, it's a bright pink soda or it's yes. purple or, you know, and here's this, you know, colorful label or it's a funny name and, yep. you know, and so you're trying to get that pop, but then you realize the pop is actually gross. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> and sometimes they're, sometimes they're meant to be and those we won't get rid of. Like black olive soda is meant to be kind of gross. I don't think anyone really going to drink that and be like, this is the best pop I've ever had. <laughs> so It's a bit like, the, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Sonard, which is that, um, I think it's like artichoke uh, liqueur. Oh, um, I and, have not. And yeah, I mean, and I would suggest like, yeah, it's one of these things that it's like, you see it, you're like, really? Right. Um, and then you and then you think to yourself, it's what you, I need to try that. And then you say, oh my God, this is disgusting. You got to try it too, right? Ex- yep, so, that's exactly how that goes. <laughs> yes. So I can, I can think that it would probably be a very similar um, situation, although I don't know how I would feel about, a, you know, I, I don't like olives as it is. Right. So, um, <laughs> you know, that's, that's just so interesting. I mean, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. Now you have the bottles, you do, you know, um, you know, some of your own stuff, obviously, as we talked about yes. on tap, but then you also do, you know, you put things together and you have phosphates and you do some of these other things that are really kind of old fashioned um, what, what about that? And I bet that's a draw for a lot of folks that are looking for that, um, you know, spark of thinking about their, you know, childhood or, you know, that sort of thing. Yes. So after the bottles, like you said, we, we do make our own and that's the whole kegging system that we had to figure out. Um, we started with just, um, really trying to refine a basic root beer recipe for ourselves, something that that we really liked that was going to be our signature draft soda. Um, and so we we worked for probably, I don't know, maybe eight months before we opened to really hone in on that recipe. And honestly, we've tweaked it since. Once we opened, we, mm-hmm. we're always asking for customer feedback. What do you like about this root beer? What, you know, what doesn't quite do it for you? And so we've We've changed our recipe even since then for the first um, maybe four months or so. Now I'm locked in, and I think we've got a pretty good root beer nailed. So I won't change it from this point on. And people have kind of come to know it and and love it. It's the go-to root beer for a lot of people. But um, then we just started playing around with with other flavors and and experimenting a little bit. And so we we started with some basics. Um, some, you know, some go-to flavors for a lot of people like orange cream sodas and cream sodas mm-hmm. and um, playing around with other root beers. We do carry other um, other soda makers things as well. Um, we've reached out to different ones and gotten some kegs from them. So we've had blueberry or strawberry or mm-hmm. uh, we've had some other root beers from other soda makers and that are a little bit different. And then and I just keep experimenting with our own and come up with some some more signature ones for us. I I was attempting um, a good cream soda that was just nice and rich and a good traditional cream soda. And it came out just kind of flat. And so um, not flat as in not carbonated, but flavor-wise, the flavor palette mm-hmm. was just a little bit flat. And so as I was trying to kind of beef it up, it came out to this just dark it's a cream soda, but it's dark and it was really good. <laughs> so I didn't know what to call it. And I was like, well, it's called a dark vanilla cream soda. And it looks like a cola or a root beer, um, but yeah. it's be- it's become very popular. So we call it the stout of cream sodas uh, just because it's oh, dark and it's rich. And 
Um, and so we we have that on tap from time to time. And now we've started playing with other flavors, um, doing a lot of flavor mixing and and that kind of thing. So I don't know. We just it something. I'll see something and it strikes me as oh that would be fun to do. And um, and so we we just start playing around with it. But then, like you said, we also um, function like a, a soda fountain in in an old time nostalgic sense. Uh, we have a, a tower that is a system that we put in that generates a, um, a an RO filtered and ionized mineralized seltzer water. So it, it hmm. basically it generates a really high end seltzer water. And wow. um, so with that, we mix up handcrafted sodas, which would be very much like what you could get in the soda fountains of old, uh, where we use syrup bases, and then we put the soda water straight into it and mix it up. And um, we tracked down a supplier out of Canada. I think it's the only one I've found that sells acid phosphate, which is what is used to make a phosphate. And um, so we keep that on hand. And so we can mix up just about any flavor phosphate you would like, as long as we've got a flavoring syrup for it. And um, we do things like that in old-fashioned chocolate sodas. Um, we've This is something that we don't have requests from, generally from people under the age of 90. But um, <laughs> we, get, we, we get several requests for old-fashioned chocolate sodas. And the first lady that ever asked me for one she had to tell me what it was, to, how to make it. And um, she had come in and she wanted to, her question for me was, can you make me a chocolate soda? And um, I, I did catch the fact that she said make, but my head was thinking, well, I've got several chocolate sodas in these bottles. And so I turned around and I- She I, didn't I, want, she didn't want you who. No, she didn't. And I and I turned around at first and I said, well, I have a few different chocolate sodas. And I started pointing to the wall. And then I saw this look of concern and confusion on her face. And I said, this is not what you mean, is it? And she said, no, can you make one? And I said, tell me what it is. I might be able to. And um, And what it is, is it's vanilla ice cream drizzled with chocolate syrup and filled with soda water. And um, and I said, I, I have everything I need to do that. Let's do this. I said, I'm going to make you one. And then you have to help me hone in on it and like get, get to what you remember. And so um, I made her one and she told me it looked wrong. And, but she drank it and she said, it tastes exactly the same. And so then when she explained to me what looked wrong about it, she said, you know, they're usually more brown, like the chocolate's mixed in. I tried to make another one and mix the chocolate in first. And then she said, this looks right, but it tastes wrong. <laughs> so, Interesting. So we kind of just, we just kept playing with it, but um, we, we got it down pretty good. And, and since then we've had a, a multitude of people come in and ask for old fashioned chocolate sodas. So and we can do them with you know, other flavors too, but that's kind of the, the staple old fashioned soda that people tend to ask for. So, and it, it's been fun to do that. And we've had people come in and ask for phosphate flavors that we hadn't tried, or, you know, just tell us about things that they remember from their childhood. And, and we try to recreate it to the best of our ability. And that's been probably one of the most fun things about being in there and having all of this stuff at our disposal is just to to recreate memories for people and create memories for new people. So it's been a lot of fun. I love that. I mean, you really are getting people to taste 
their memories, which is, you know, really invaluable. And um, I'm looking forward to coming down since you're close to me and certainly uh, encourage anybody else to, to go ahead and do so. Uh, so I can maybe, you know, create some new memories and, and maybe take along some of my family who want to recreate some of their own from back in the day. Sure. Really, thank you so much for, for joining us. Really appreciate you sharing your story. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.